You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows Trio programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former Trio staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with Trio. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that introduction. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. In this episode, we have Heath Alexander, the Director for Grants and Program Evaluation at Study Smart Tutors. Heath is in the program today to talk about his journey through the Trio programs, his major influences, and how he developed his own company to partner with various tutoring programs. So up next on the podcast, Heath Alexander. Before we jump into the podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all the retail workers out there who are you know, serving the people day to day and are serving us, whether it's through fast food, groceries, uh, big shout out to the nurses, the doctors, everyone right now going through this COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through. We appreciate all the workers that are still out there and doing their thing. Uh, we truly do appreciate you. Hopefully all of our audience, if you're non-essential, that you are practicing social distancing. And that is how we're advocating for our podcast too. We were face-to-face and right now we're doing a lot of online interviews uh, to keep our podcast going. Uh, so again, we hope that you're practicing social distancing and keeping your family safe. Yes, get out and get some fresh air, but uh, don't put people at risk by uh, congregating with more than five people. And really, you should be staying at home. I also wanted to take this moment to thank our huge sponsor, Student Access. They are sponsoring our podcast today. I'd also like to give a huge sh- shout out to all of our listeners supporting the podcast, you sharing, you commenting, giving us ratings, and spreading the word. That is really helping our podcast, and it continues to grow uh, each time you do that. So thank you. We still have our goal out on Patreon to at least achieve about $500 a month. So you can go to patreon.com, look for Let's Talk Trio, and donate any dollar amount that you can per month we also have a kickstarter so if you would like to donate to our kickstarter campaign now this campaign is really focused what we're trying to do is raise funds to go to washington dc in september for the coe annual conference that is our big goal right now uh, we're estimating about twenty-five thousand to thirty thousand for our, our team of three to go to the coe policy conference 
or the COE annual conference. That way we can do a live broadcast, uh, interview a lot of people that are involved with the, with the Council for Opportunity and Education, and get to sit down and interview on a panel with various TRIO programs and directors, administrators. So if we really want to do that, uh, head over to our Kickstarter and donate any dollar amount. It's a one-time donation, and uh, we'd give you a shout-out here on the podcast. A huge thank you to my team, uh, John Russell, for being the audio engineer. He's been super patient. We've had to cram episodes uh, back-to-back, and John has been super patient. I also want to appreciate Emilia Castaneda, who has been our uh, keeping our audience engaged through social media. So if you've not checked out our Instagram, if you've not checked out our Facebook, uh, go to those. Uh, we really would like to interact with our audience. And... Uh, Again, if you have a story to tell and you want your story shared here on Let's Talk Trio, give us a message. We'll reach out to you and we'll set a time and date for you to come onto the podcast. And again, right now we are strictly online. So we will do online interviews via Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Google Meet, whatever other platform you can think of. Uh, We will do online interviews. And um, if you request your video to also be uploaded, I think Amelia and John, they do a really good job of packaging that together and we can figure something out. So uh, again, very appreciative of the Let's Talk Trio uh, podcast team. They've they've done a fantastic job. Um, And so, yeah, just keep make sure that, uh, again, you send that request through Facebook and we'll get in touch with you soon. That being said, please sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Trio podcast. My next guest has been part of the Trio community for the past 28 years, beginning with his participation as a Trio Talent Search student in high school. He began his employment with Trio as an undergraduate student tutor counselor for the Upward Bound and Upward Bound Math Science at Grand Valley State University, where he went on to serve as the coordinator, teacher, and associate director for eight years. He served both for the Michigan Trio Association as president in 2006 and the MAEOPP Regional Board as legislation and education chair and graduate of the Emerging Leaders and CAS Training Institutes. My guest worked at the Council for Opportunity and Education in Washington, D.C. from 2008 to 2015 as the Director of State Outreach Initiatives, Director of Public and Private Partnerships, Director of Priority for Training with the U.S. Department of Education, Director of the National Student Leadership Congress, Staff Liaison to the Coalition of Human Needs, Steering Committee Member for Federal Student Aid Office Initiatives, and Faculty Member of COE's Grant Proposal Writing Workshop Team. My guest has also worked for as recently as a national consultant for corporate, nonprofit, K through 12th, and higher education grant writing, grant training, evaluation, and compliance assessment as a highly touted speaker in the areas of grant writing, grassroots organization, financial literacy, college affordability, and student leadership. My next guest is Heath Alexander, who is currently the director of program evaluation and grants uh, with the Study Smart Tutors. Uh, a Los Angeles-based program. So, Heath, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We are very fortunate to have you, especially with a lot of things happening around the, uh, the U.S., uh, a little bit, with the, of course, with the coronavirus happening. How are you feeling and how are you doing with and how are you managing with all that? Yeah, it's definitely some interesting kind of new times for us yeah, all over the country. And I think people from all walks of life are feeling the effects of it. Um, you know, I personally am okay. My family's okay. Um, 
we're uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area still where things are, you know, like much of the country, things are being shut down. We're, um, you know, being asked to stay home. Uh, schools are closed. Um, you know, daily life uh, definitely has been transformed. Uh, on a personal level, I've, um, you know, I've been working from home uh, in a home office for the past five or six years, so I've already kind of adjusted to, you know, to work life uh, in, in a home office. And so, you know, from that aspect, uh, that's not anything new for me. Uh, but certainly I know that it's impacting my work in that, um, you know, speaking to clients and even doing outreach to clients is, is more difficult because most people are not in their offices and they're still trying to adjust, uh, you know, to this new kind of life that they're, that they're forced into. So uh, it's definitely, um, you know, it's definitely altered things uh, for me, you know, not from the perspective of working from home, but just from the perspective of, of trying to, to help meet the needs of, uh, of clients that I work with, uh, you know, as they're adjusting. Absolutely. So this has been a really interesting time, uh, especially with uh, parts of the country that are shutting down, bars are closing, and uh, for for your program specifically, or uh, I'm sorry, for your for your business, uh, how have you been able to adjust, or what have you been able to do to kind of either work around or uh, con continue to stay in contact with your clients? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. We've been strategizing over the last couple of weeks about how to ensure that there's no disruption of service, particularly to programs and their students, uh, and of course the clients themselves. And so we've sort of quickly um, shifted gears to providing some online tutoring. Um, oh, wow. Prep tutoring, uh, more virtual meetings, virtual tutoring, uh, virtual professional development for staff and students. Um, and of course, um, I've got a couple of clients who I had planned to do some program evaluation for who are now um, discussing me doing some evaluation stuff virtually instead of on site. Um, so, you know, with technology, it kind of allows us to still stay connected in some ways. Yeah. Um, I guess mostly we're just trying to be careful and, and cognizant of the fact that people are still trying to wrap their own heads around how they're going to manage this process. Um, and we just want to be there for them um, without, you know, putting on any extra undue pressure. Um, you know, I know that people are getting emails from virtually every company that has their email, you know, in their database around yeah. the services that they provide. And so, you know, we want to, you know, try, try to be somewhat um, empathetic about people's situation, but also to let people know that, you know, virtually we can still provide a lot of the same services. So it's, it's actually pretty cool. Right on. So before we jump into the podcast, Heath, our audience really likes to get to know the person behind the titles and the experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about you, um, kind of the things that you like, your hobbies, uh, and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess I'll just start a little bit with my backstory. Uh, as you mentioned in my bio, I am a TRIO alum. I was a student in Talent Search. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud of. Um, I did grow up in, in pretty pretty dire generational poverty. Uh, in, I was born in Michigan, but I grew up primarily in rural Oklahoma. Um, my mom had three kids, three children at the age of 18. Uh, her fourth child at 22, she was a single mom. Um, and as she tells the story, um, you know, I was born into homelessness. She was living out of her car when she was pregnant with me. Oh, wow. And the vast majority of, of my family uh, did not go to college, mm -hmm. um, and I became sort of a trailblazer in that sense of being a first-hand college student in my family. 
and uh, certainly the only person to, to go to a four-year school and get a bachelor's degree and then eventually a master's degree. Um, so, you know, growing up in, in poverty and gr growing up in sort of an environment where most people don't finish high school or don't go to college um, is certainly a part of my backstory and why TRIO was so critical for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess in terms of talking about other things like hobbies and all that, uh, one of the things that um, sort of propelled me uh, into academic success uh, was really sports. Um, I was able to, at a young age, I just picked up a basketball and I just started playing, you know, hours and hours every day just to kind of escape, um, you know, some of the sort of geographic environment, uh, if you will. And so, mm -hmm. You know, basketball is a sport where you can practice on your own dribble shoot. All Absolutely, day, yeah. And, rain and, and everything else. And so um, I excelled at sports, and so that kind of gave me some purpose around going to school and doing well in school and, you know, kind of shaped who I hung out with and, and the kinds of things that I aspired to do. So sports has always been a, a pretty big part of my life. Um, played basketball and baseball all the way through, you know, elementary and high school, uh, middle school and high school. Um, and so that's, you know, those are, those are certainly big hops in mind for sure. Right on. So sports really took hold and you were able to take advantage of the opportunities that were presented to you in that way. Um, were there any uh, specific places that maybe you have traveled to either recently or uh, during uh, your high school years that, you know, you, you look back on and you say, I really enjoyed that opportunity or I really enjoyed that travel? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, when I was, you know, when I was young, in middle school, we moved to Texas um, for a little over a year, and I went to a couple of schools there that were very big. And so I had gone, you know, I had uh, went to a high school, uh, excuse me, I went to elementary and middle school in a, in, a, in a little small town in Oklahoma where we had less than 1,000 people living there. And the middle schools that I was attending in, in, in Texas, you know, were a couple of thousand just in the middle school, you know, the high schools with six or 7,000 students. Um, and I was still able to sort of compete athletically. Um, I was, um, I actually made the eighth grade um, basketball teams in both of those cities in, in San Antonio and in, in Duncanville near Dallas, Texas. Um, and so that kind of, you know, kind of gave me some additional confidence and also playing against better competition. Yeah. Um, you know, strengthened my skills over time as well so that eventually when I moved back to Oklahoma and then eventually you know, finished high school in Michigan, um, you know, I had competing against some of the best players in the country wow. down there in Texas. Very interesting. Very cool. So as we dive in to your experience, can you first walk us through your journey in TRIO? How did that come about, and how did you join TRIO? Yeah, so um, I went to, you know, multiple high schools in multiple states, you know, from 8th grade through 12th grade. Um, I switched schools about five times in three different states, and so um, it, it was challenging for me to kind of connect with teachers and counselors and people like that at the school system level. Um, and then eventually in 10th grade, um, I moved to Michigan uh, to another small town, uh, Marcellus, Michigan, um, just south of Kalamazoo. And uh, they had a talent search program there. Uh, the talent search program really was the first um, set of counselors that start having me thinking about college, asking me what I wanted to be in life, having me fill out interest surveys, and then of course later on help me fill out the FAFSA and scholarship applications and, and eventually apply to college. Um, 
you know, that, those services were not available really in the school that I attended. And, you know, having, having a program come in and, and kind of help with that, you know, really sort of set me on a path to go to college. I hadn't really considered how I would, would go to college. Um, but one of the cool things that happened was, um, you know, Talent Search is a, is a program for middle school and high school students. Mm-hmm. And so in 10th and 11th and 12th grade, um, as a participant in Talent Search, one of the things that they had us do was to mentor the middle school students. Oh, wow, that's so, interesting. Um, yeah, like two days a week before school, like 7 o'clock in the morning, we would go to school and we would tutor the middle school kids in their subjects as well. So um, it, the program really helped to kind of think about me, um, you know, being in education, working in education, and certainly going to college. Um, and and I'm, I'm pretty certain if it weren't for Talent Search that... Uh, you know, my, certainly my path to college would have been much more difficult if, if not existent. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Uh, do you remember who was the person that helped guide you through that? Was there, was there one person or were there, was there a group of people that helped you through that? Yeah, so there, there was a counselor who I'm not in touch with any, any longer, but his name was Buzz. It's hard to forget a name like Buzz. Yeah. Calvert was uh, the, the talent search um, advisor at the time, and he was the one who came to our school and kind of help get me connected. Um, and interesting enough, um, I didn't even realize that it, that it was a trio program while I was in it. Uh-huh. Um, it. It wasn't until I became um, a, a coordinator for Upper Bound after I graduated from college that I even knew that I, that I was a trio alum because I was sitting at my desk and um, I got an email from the director of the talent search program that I was in in high school. Uh-huh. And she actually was a participant in that same program. Oh, really? Um, and so we were participants in the same talent search program at the same time. In fact, we were the first class of students in that program. Oh, wow. And she started emailing me interesting things about my childhood, about my high school uh, time. And at the end of the email, she said, I bet you wonder how I know all of this about you. And my assumption, and I, I believe my response back to her was, you must have ran into my mom at the grocery store <laughs> bragging about this. <laughs> you know, eventually the email said, no, you big dummy, you actually were in this talent search program. We're cleaning out our office. Oh, wow. From high school. So <laughs> she, actually, she actually had archived in a box a bunch of files, and she found my name in there. Yeah. She sent me a copy of my file. And so, you know, later on as I became you know, an employee of Tree, I was able to look back at my file and see the kinds of things that the program did with me. Yeah. And as I mentioned, I, you know, looked at interest surveys and, it, you know, talked about what you want to be when you go to college and, you know, after college and that kind of thing. And so I kind of reflected on the fact that, you know, at the time I just thought it was a school program. I didn't realize it was this, you know, TRIO program. Uh, uh-huh. And now I was a bigger part of TRIO. And, you know, as my bio mentions, later became a, a state president and an international yeah. advocate here. So yeah. it's kind of a really cool sort of backstory around how I got involved in TRIO and how my TRIO experience transformed from student to, you know, student worker to employee and into sort of this national advocate and, and national voice for, for equity and access. That is amazing. So I intentionally left out, because it really leads on to the next question, I intentionally left out this next part. So Heath holds a Master of Science in Educational Leadership and a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Chemistry and a Michigan Teacher's Certification all through Grand Valley State University uh, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So with that, would you say that your experience in TRIO really shaped your, your view in education? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I don't think anyone 
or, or at least most people don't think about going to college to work in equity and access, like, or, or in, you know, uh, educational leadership or in, you know, working in uh, student services divisions. That's not something that really people, you know, you don't see it on TV and right. people don't talk about it. And so, you know, originally I went to college to become a physical therapist. And um, my goal was if I didn't make it to the NBA playing basketball, I was going to make it to the NBA as a, as a sports medicine doctor or a physical therapist. Oh, right on. Yeah. You know, taping up Michael Jordan's ankles on, on the <laughs> bench or something like right. that. So, you know, I went to college uh, to, to, to study physical therapy. Uh-huh. But my first job was in the academic services center. My, I was a work-study student. And... My freshman year of college, I went to the student services center to look for jobs, and they had a they had a bulletin board of job postings. You know, back then there wasn't a lot of email and things like that, so it, so everything was like physically posted on a board. Mm-hmm. And I selected the job that paid the most, and it was four dollars and forty cents an hour, um, which was higher than minimum wage at the time. Yeah. And so I, I chose the job that paid the most, and it ended up being working with students with learning disabilities. Mm. Uh, in the Disability Supportive Services Office. Yeah. And that's how I got reintroduced uh, to TRIO as Upper Bound and eventually became an Upper Bound counselor. And that's where I kind of fell in love again with TRIO and also this idea that I could help students who came from similar backgrounds as mine. Um, yeah. And I certainly had a built-in empathy for low-income populations having, you know, grown up in poverty myself. Um, and TRIO sort of helped me understand how I can impact my world and, and impact, um, you know, kids like me who are kind of diamonds in the rough, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. That opportunity and, and sort of built a passion that, that could, you know, sort of enhance the, the empathy I had already built in. Wow. So TRIO kind of came full circle for you again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's, that's exactly what happened. And, um, in fact, as a college student, uh, being a summer camp counselor for Upper Bound, um, I, I think I probably drove the, the directors crazy because I was kind of living out my, you know, not having upper bound summer programs as a counselor student. Uh-huh. Um, I kind of enjoyed myself a little too much as a summer counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Which is possible to do, right? When you're uh, doing upper bound program summers, you get used to it. And uh, it sounds like you got really, it formed a passion and you were just, um, I would say, enthusiastic, right? Yeah, the, the passion was definitely there. Absolutely. And, you know, I found that through working with students with learning disabilities, you know, all kinds of impairments and disabilities in the disability service office, and then working with TRIO high school students, um, I found that, that I had a knack for it. I was good at it. You know, yeah. teaching was something that kind of came naturally, naturally to me. And, you know, I could understand the students and understand their struggles and, you know, obstacles that they had in their past and, and you know, I could serve as an example of how, you know, you can grow up in, in pretty dire conditions and still make it out. And so I was able to sort of use my own experience um, to talk to students who were struggling or who were having difficult times. And, um, you know, it kind of feels good um, when you're able to help people in that way. You're, you're able to break through. You want to kind of keep experiencing that feeling over and over again. Yeah. And... You know, the same thing happened to me when I was in school myself. You know, uh, what I say to a lot of people is success breeds success. If you if you get that feeling of being successful at something, you want to, you know, sort of feel that feeling again and again. And a lot of young people don't experience success in school very often, and so they get discouraged. Yeah. And it's really important to have somebody, um, 
you know, have a human being in their life to, to tell them to keep their head up and to help pave a path for them. And that's what TRIO offered me was the ability to kind of give back and, um, you know, really impact people who kind of grew up in, in similar situations as me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think that TRIO really awakens a lot of passions for a variety of people. And uh, you going into education, it just sounds like TRIO started highlighting that path for you and you started really identifying with how to help uh, students, especially if they have uh, certain disadvantages or face economic disadvantages. So that's really cool. Uh, really glad that you shared that experience with us. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate the question. And, um, you know, it, working with, you know, the disability office and working with um, TRIO programs, you know, TRIO students is what sort of helped me change my mind and my major from physical therapy to education. Um, and, you know, was, was the, you know, sort of genesis of my, my desire to want to be a teacher. Yeah. So that leap from physical uh, therapy to over to education, were your advisors baffled at all or were they uh, understanding of that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for the most part, people were understanding about it. Um, they knew that it was something I had a passion for. And I also kept, you know, when you're, when you're studying physical therapy, you're taking a lot of biology and a lot of anatomy and a lot right. of history classes anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the decision I made was to stay on that path and get a degree in biology and chemistry and, and to be certified to teach in those subjects, um, which made me feel like I would be more marketable at being able to obtain a, a teaching position. Um, you know, there, there aren't as many biology and chemistry teachers out there as there are some other subjects. And so, um, you know, I think I, I chose the right path in that. Yeah. Right on. So for you, you you worked for the Council for Opportunity and Education, uh, or COE. What was that experience like? Kind of fast forwarding your, your career a little bit. How did, how did that pres opportunity present itself to you? Yeah. That's a, that's a really great question. I'll first say that, um, you know, overall big picture, the experience um, certainly changed my life and transformed transform my life. And, you know, really it's actually a um, really great timing for this question uh, because what, what sort of changed my perspective was going to the COE's annual policy seminar, which is, is actually going to be going on now. Um, and, you know, I went to the policy seminar for the first time, went on Capitol Hill, met with members of Congress, Mm. Um, and I studied the manual that CUE gave me. I read every word of it for two days before we went on the hill so that at the time that we went to those meetings, um, I had essentially memorized all the talking points, all the data, all the numbers. And when we got in those meetings, um, something kind of came over me and I just excelled and performed really well in those meetings. And then wow. my colleagues who were with me were, were much older and were mentors of mine. They sort of said, notice, like, wow, how did you know all that stuff? And, you know, you seem to handle yourself under pressure really well. Um, you seem to really be able to understand how to talk to these members of Congress and their staff. And that kind of propelled me. Um, and, and then they started to encourage me to, to take on leadership positions in the, in the TRIO associations. Wow. And so I started off with legislation education and stuff and eventually became a state president, uh, did the Emerging Leaders Institute. Um, and so the policy seminar really paved the path for all of those things. But more importantly, it kind of helped me see the bigger picture of what was going on. That, uh -huh. you know, TRIO as a family, as a movement, um, was much bigger than me working with my 110 upper bound students. Um, not that it, it minimized that or diminished it in any way, but it was like, hey, I, you know, we're actually impacting a million students a year, not 100 
at 100 students at my school. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of woke me up politically. Like before that, I really was not thinking about politics at all. I really was just, I just wanted to be a teacher. I figured I would teach for right. three or four years and retire. I never thought about doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And policy seminar opened up this whole new world for me where I knew that I needed to get involved and be more politically active. And so that that sort of sparked my involvement in these, these uh, professional organizations at the state regional level. And of course, at the national level. And then uh, in 2008, COE was actively looking to hire somebody from the Trino community mm-hmm. um, to bring the, the experiences of a professional uh, to Washington, D.C., because most of the employees up to that point had, you know, did not have, you know, real program experience. Most of them had, right. had come from very elite institutions mm-hmm. um, and had credentials on Capitol Hill and, and, and other places. And so um, essentially I was the first person from the TRIO community to make the transition from a program level up to, uh, to COE working in Washington, D.C. Amazing. Yeah, so COE kind of extended the opportunity for me to apply. I had really connected with a lot of staff people there, um, Al Phillips and Angelica Villapondo and Heather Valentine, you know, and certainly Dr. Mitchell and Maureen. And so I guess I had... Um, you know, sort of made a name for myself in the sense of like thinking that I may be somebody who they were interested in hiring. And so I put my put my resume out there and went to an interview and, and ultimately, um, you know, was elected to become the, the new director of uh, public and private partnerships, which later became the director of state outreach initiatives. That is amazing, Heath. Uh, you've gone through um, quite a career change from teacher to now working with uh, COE, right? You've, you've gone through all these career evolutions. Uh, and then you landed to having to uh, start your own company. Uh, can you walk us through that experience? That, that must have been uh, really something else. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, very interesting. About a third of my career was spent in, in higher ed nonprofit, um, right. you know, working at a university. Um, Another third working here in Washington, D.C. on sort of grassroots organizing, political organizing kind of stuff. Um, and then this, this last few years I've been spent uh, in the private sector. Um, and I recently helped to start two companies. One was my own private consulting business where mm-hmm. I helped trio programs uh, write their federal grants so you know, respond to the RFPs on an annual basis. Right. And also help them ensure that they're their staff are trained appropriately and that they're in federal compliance um, with their program in terms of, you know, participant filing systems and budgets and, um, you know, all the things that go into compliance. Mm-hmm. So for the past uh, five years, um, I've primarily been consulting with colleges and universities on, you know, ensuring that, the, that those grants are refunded or, or getting new grants. Um, and then I also helped to start a an education fintech company, and fintech is just financial technology. Started a company called Six Up uh, PBC, which is a public benefit corporation mm-hmm. uh, in the San Francisco area. Wow! And I worked on the startup team there. Um, we, you know, put the company together. We raised uh, a seed round um, from some venture capitalists, um, and eventually um, brought on some other major investors like Goldman Sachs and. Wow. Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, J.P. Morgan. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. We we just launched that startup company um, 
since then I've um, started taking my consulting business and merged it with Study Smart Tutors that you mentioned in the intro. Uh -huh. um, Study Smart Tutors is a um, is an education company in, in Los Angeles that does um, college and career readiness stuff, including test preparation and financial and financial literacy, tutor mentor training, and um, the founder and owner of that company, Jack Friedman, and I came to um, to a, a, a deal to sort of merge my consulting business in with StudySmart. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm going to continue on working with programs to help them write their grants and, and do program evaluation through um, you know, through the study smart Just looking at a retrospective look of your career, so you, you started off, you said, from, from very dire, kind of all hope is lost background, and now here you are, you've, you've formed and helped create various companies and merging with companies. You've come a long way. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, to look back on that journey is really interesting for me personally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I used to think when I first moved to D.C., I, I lived in, in the Columbia Heights area of D.C., and I would take the take the bus to work every day. And the bus that I took was the S2 bus, S4 bus, uh, right down 16th Street in Washington, D.C. And 16th Street, that is right into the White House. And so um, when I first moved to D.C., I just remember sitting on the bus going to work every day thinking, man, I'm looking at... I'm looking at the White House and the Washington Monument on my way to work every single day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to live you know, out in the middle of a field in a trailer home with no electricity or running water in, mm. in Oklahoma, like 20 minutes from the closest town. And, you know, here I am, uh, you know, doing this. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in the Goldman Sachs boardroom on the 42nd floor in Manhattan, you know, like... Yeah, that is a long know. leap. <laughs> crazy journey, man. Look, looking out over the, you know, over the harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty from this, like... This major investor office—it was like, wow, yeah. it's really crazy how far I've come. That is that is amazing, Keith, and congratulations on everything that's been happening to you and for you. Uh, absolutely, I know the Trio community is very proud. Um, one of the greatest passions you have is educational policy. As I hear your story, that education is a theme that keeps reoccurring. Um, because policy is something that you're hoping to make a change, are you looking for new methods or are, what, what changes are you hoping to implement as you're talking about educational policy as a whole? Yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty important question in today's time. And, and I guess, you know, from a big, big picture perspective, the way I would answer that is, um, you know, college access uh, for a long time was really at the forefront of what we talked about. Uh, later on, people started to look at the data and say, wow, you know, we've been sending a lot of low-income kids to college. Um, access is not always the issue. Right. Um, it, it is still an issue, but success uh, really is the, the sort of benchmark that we need to, to have impact on. And that is we're sending millions of low-income kids to college every year and they're not getting out with a degree or they're getting out with a degree that does not align with the workforce so they're not able to land a job immediately. Uh, and they're also leaving college with massive amounts of, of student loan debt. Oh, yes, um, yes. And a big part of that is um, not only college affordability, but also the paths that students tend to take. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, low-income kids, by and large, um, get pushed into less expensive 
institutions as a result. Oh, sure, yeah. The narrative becomes, well, the community college is cheap, it's free, you know, you've got a Pell Grant, you can go down to the local community college and get your degree there. Mm -hmm. Then you can transfer to a four-year school uh, and, and go for two more years and get your bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And so this narrative gets painted with three community college initiatives at, you know, state and federal levels, you know, policy-wise. Mm -hmm. um, that essentially continues to push low-income kids into um, schools with lower outcomes, schools that are, are you know, two-year degrees instead of four-year degrees. And so I think the equity and the access piece around higher education, um, in, in my opinion, is getting worse for that reason. Oh, I see. Yeah. So the National Center for Education Statistics uh, in a report last year showed students who get a bachelor's degree by first going to community college on average nationally take 17 months longer to earn their bachelor's degree. Oh, wow. So to me, the issue is not just about cost on the front end. It's about the opportunity costs on the back end. And so what I really push is helping students map out the best path to their degree and to their career. And so if we can't help students attend the best fit college for them, if we can't get them out with their degree in a reasonable timeline, they are going to incur more debt. They are going to leave college with larger debt loads and have mm -hmm. a more difficult time paying them. Um, and, and more importantly, or as equally important, is a lot of students who do go to community colleges you know, are spending three and four years there, and they're not getting their associates in two years and transferring. They're using up a lot of their financial aid eligibility at the two-year school. Um, and many of them are not able to transfer when they get to the, the 60 credits or the associate's degree because a lot of four-year universities are not highly recruiting them. They're not using their financial aid packages in an equitable way mm. to, to bring transfer students over. Um, I've had, you know, ABPs of major four-year universities tell me, you know, we just don't package them the same way. Um, one of the largest four-year schools in the country said, their, their ABP said to me, you know, for every student who lives in our state who comes to our university, our, our flagship school, they get a full tuition grant. But transfer students don't get the same grant. They're not eligible for it. Huh. And so essentially those students who opt to go to community college first actually get less financial aid to attend a four-year school and they end up taking on more debt on the back end. Mm -hmm. And so while it looks, you know, it looks less expensive on the front end, it ends up costing students time and money on the back end. Yeah. And so my, my sort of policy position on this is that we've got to find a way to give students the right information at the time that they need it so that they can make a better decision about their long-term, you know, college affordability. Absolutely. So what, I often, like what I often say is, like, college affordability is not the price tag. It's going to be the full cost that you pay both financially and with the time that you spend there over the course of your, your college career. And unfortunately, students are only able to kind of look at their financial aid package from a one-year perspective. Yeah. In many cases, a one-semester perspective. And that's just not enough information to help them make a better decision about where they go to college. Yeah. So then I'm going to ask this question, kind of skipping ahead a little bit, uh, Heath. So you've seen these uh, Facebook posts or social media posts about family members uh, talking about the practicality of public or private education, the core issue being life skills and the lack of this topic in education. What is your re initial reaction to those types of posts that uh, we, we're, we're getting a lot of this of social media feedback saying, well, our universities and colleges, are they practical anymore? 
Yeah, that's a that's a difficult sort of subject to talk about, but I, I think I'll answer it this way. Um, we certainly need to to attach, in my opinion, um, college, you know, high school and college outcomes uh, and align them to the workforce. Um, you know, you shouldn't have stories of students going to college and amassing 20, 30, 40, 100K in debt. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To get a degree that is never going to land them a job. That just should not happen. Right. And I know that there are those that disagree with me that, that say college in and of itself is an experience and, um, you know, liberal arts is great and, and I have a, you know, went to liberal high school and all that stuff. Um, well, that's fine. Um, but you can't say that and also say students are leaving college with debt and, and they're not able to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so at some point we've got to find a way to align high school outcomes to what they need to know to be successful in college and then right. college outcomes to what they need to be successful in the workforce. Absolutely. And it seems to me that our education system is very segmented in that way. High school finished, now I gotta to go to college and I gotta relearn how to learn in college. Mm, what yeah. I knew like like what I knew in high school is not as applicable anymore to college. Yeah. And then when students leave college into the workforce, they have to relearn um, or learn for the first time what it means to be an employee, what it means to be you know, to have the skills that are transferable to the workforce. And so yeah. I just see that like those segmented you know, parts of our system need to find a way to come together to create a pipeline um, from high school into college and career. And it just, to me, doesn't seem like that's happening in a large scale way. That's actually very interesting that you said that because this segues really nicely into this next question is that educational, again, education policies being one of your greatest strengths, what are your thoughts about testing as it relates to success in the classroom? Because we have, right, that the notion that testing is very much this, uh, it determines the success of the student, it determines the success of the student after graduation. What are your thoughts surrounding that? So I think you're referring to standardized testing, right? Yes. Student safety benchmark testing, that kind of thing. Um, yes. You know, as a teacher, uh, a former teacher, um, you know, certainly I think it, it, it is difficult to think about a standardized test as a way to, you know, to monitor my effectiveness as a teacher or our students' ability to learn and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, how that works. Um, I don't think it's a – I definitely do not think standardized tests are representative of students' ability uh, long-term in college and beyond. Um, I think about my own personal experience, I think I got like a 19 on the ACT, which was Mm -hmm. about national average or maybe like a point below national average at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went on to get a degree in chemistry and biology. So, you know, certainly my test score would have suggested that, you know, I I wouldn't be able to go and earn a degree in biology. Oh, no, right. Yeah. In particular. So so it's hard for me to, you know, kind of think that that those are predictive. Um, But at the same time, um, I do understand that we need to find ways to um, sort of check to see, you know, uh, you know, from, from a state or even national level how students are doing in comparison to each other. Um, but there's a lot of bias, obviously. You know, there are students who are English language learners who mm-hmm. have a difficult time reading the text. Um, and so they're not able to display what they actually know about things like mathematics when they're reading a long passage before they have to answer the math question. Mm-hmm. And they're not able to finish the test on time, you know, a lot of those are time tests, and so 
Um, there are students, certainly my experience with students with learning disabilities, um, you know, students are giving accommodations, but still, um, you know, students are much brighter than, um, than I think test scores show oftentimes. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have a daughter who's a special needs child. She has, she's in special education. And, you know, I look at her test scores and I look at what she's able to talk to me about verbally versus what she can write on a test, and, and it's just night and day different. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just a lot of problems, I think, with basing the entire system on, you know, a, a standardized testing model. Absolutely, um, yeah. But I am, you know, I, am, I do understand that, you know, we've got to find a way uh, to assess student learning and to assess student outcomes. And, um, you know, I, I don't agree that, that uh, ranking or rating teachers based on standardized test scores is the right thing to do if, if that's that was part of inherently in your question. Oh, no, yeah. I think uh, you would find that the audience would uh, agree with you with your assessment. I think that more can be done to find other ways to see uh, how can we assess student learning and how can we uh, achieve those objectives. Um, so college access, uh, you were touching this a little, a little bit on it. College access to first-generation students comes with a lot of barriers. What more can be done by universities or other entities to support students in their transition to college? I think that's a really great, um, really great point. Um, honestly, I just I think one major thing is to be more transparent in the expectations about what college is going to be, how much it's going to cost through the entire life of your degree, and how that college or university is going to help propel you, prepare and propel you into the workforce. Um, I think students oftentimes are really going in blind. Some of that is they're not doing their own research, but it, it's also not that easy to kind of figure out. I mean, I know adults with multiple degrees who have a very difficult time figuring out the financial aid system. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was traveling around the country presenting on the fintech company that I helped start around financial aid, and I was meeting with university officials across the board all over the country at multiple universities, and the vast, vast, vast majority of them would have to defer every topic and every question to the financial aid office because they just didn't know. And these are people with PhDs who work at universities and they still don't know the system. So, you know, I just think transparency and understanding the process itself, I think we have to move to a model where the student understands what is a four-year cost going to be, not just a one-year cost. Absolutely. Um, universities do a lot of what we call front-loading, which is, um, they provide a lot of financial aid to incoming freshmen as a recruiting tool, and then those financial aid packages are not um, are not fully loaded second, third, fourth year as they are in the first year. And yeah. students often find themselves in second or third year with larger gaps than what they had anticipated. Yeah. Uh, so they might go in and having to borrow three thousand dollars their first year, and all of a sudden the second year is eight thousand. Their third year is ten thousand. Saying, wait a minute, I can't. Like it's very difficult for me to come up with this money. I thought I was only going to have to pay 2500 every year. Right. Why am I now paying 8000 my second year? So mm -hmm. I think students get in, they, they essentially are signing a contract to go to these universities without understanding the full amount that they're going to have to pay long term. So I, I, I talk a lot about financial aid because I think that's the largest barrier right now. Mm -hmm. When you think about income inequality in the country, it's, it, it, it shows up in higher education. We're essentially segmenting our higher ed system where 
you know, low-income students, uh, you know, are able to go to these sets of colleges or universities, and then, you know, students with more financial means are able to go to a different set. And so, um, I just wish that wasn't a thing. Yeah. Um, so I think colleges can be more transparent um, in, you know, what is a student getting into. The second thing is I think they need to help students. They need to continue to evolve their their model of degree completion. Mm-hmm. We should not be having students in college for six years, seven years. Oh yeah, um, yeah. There ought to be paths for students to earn a degree in a shorter time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, three years, four years. Um, the average low-income student uh, takes 62 months to get their bachelor's degree from from again from the National Center. National Center for Education Statistics. Mm-hmm. You know, 62 months for the average low-income kid or our Pell eligible student is just too long. Yeah, that's a long time. We've got to shorten their time, I think. Yeah. So often, first-generation and low-income students see the college-going process as something they have to go through by themselves. Um, is it important to involve families or first-generation low-income students as they go through this process? And what can, what can families learn from this college-going process? Yeah, that's that's something that everyone's still trying to figure out, I think. And, you know, when you come from a family where no one else had, had gone to college before and they don't understand the process, um, oftentimes those families do feel helpless in terms of, you know, trying to figure that out. And, you know, far too many times a student calls home in trouble uh, and the parents say, well, I don't know what we can do to help. I guess you just got to come home. And then the student drops out and nobody knows what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think we definitely need to involve the parents more in, in the process. Um, from entering college and all the way through, um, keep them more engaged, keep them more informed, you know, try to find ways to send them more information. And with technology, it should be easier to do that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we haven't found a really great way of doing that yet. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think it's critical. You know, I think back to my my own personal experience, and you know, I graduated with my bachelor's degree. It was a big deal in my family, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, graduation was a big deal. People came, and then you know, later I got my master's degree, and um, you know, only my mom came to my graduation because it was like hmm. you already graduated from college. Why do you have another graduation? <laughs> right. I didn't quite understand the process. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, involving families is really, really critical. Absolutely. Uh, not only from the parents' perspective, but also from, you know, siblings coming after, you know, younger brothers and sisters or cousins coming after. Yeah. So we're going to, a couple more questions, Heath, and then we'll wrap up. But uh, what are some things you, you wish you knew when you went to college? Yeah. Boy, that's, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I wish I knew how to study. Mm, that's, um, that seems yeah, to be the theme. Yeah. I remember, you know, all through elementary, and middle school, and high school, I was a straight-A student. I didn't get my first non-A in a class until 10th grade geometry. Mm-hmm. And I went to college, and my first semester I had a 2.3 GPA. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got a C in biology, which was my major, in, in intro biology. And I remember being in, in the class and in the lab and hearing students saying, Oh, we did this back in high school, and it was something I'd never heard of before, right? So, like, I was yeah. not as prepared as I needed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also didn't know how to study. Um, when you're in high school, you're used to having a bunch of homework assignments that help you save your grade, right? Like, oh, yeah. I can work hard. Like, working hard is not a problem for me. I've always been that way. And so I, I worked really hard to get the best grades I could. In college, your grade 
you know, no one told me that, hey, your grade is based on three exams and a paper. And if you mess up even your first exam, you're going to have to climb out of this hole that you're in, and it's right. really difficult to do that. And Absolutely. So I just didn't understand how grading was going to work. I didn't understand how you had to pretty much learn on your own. I didn't understand how to take notes and then go back and study them and read the book on my own. I thought if I went to class and soaked up everything the professor told me that I would come back and take the exam and be fine. Yeah. Um, and because I had kind of gotten away with that in high school, and it did not serve me well in college. Yeah, yeah. I think that college serves as a time for us to really write, to look at our skills and say, okay, what, what, do I, what can I still bring to the table and make the most out of this? Um, one thing... Yeah, oh, yeah, go ahead. More independent learning. Yeah. Know, um, independent learning is not something you're taught as much in those schools. Right. Oh, yeah. So that, that cost me a lot, my first couple years. It, it took me a while to climb out of that, that academic hole. Mm -hmm. um, I had to actually retake a couple classes. Oh, so what are some some challenges do you see for future generation of college students uh, that they're looking ahead and they're wanting to go to college? What are some challenges do you see? Yeah, I think um, I think college may look different. Ah. Um, uh, may look a little bit different in the future. Uh, it's interesting because I thought about this um, a while back, and now what we're seeing with kind of full circle to the beginning of the conversation around. You know the coronavirus and, and schools closing. And oh yes. A lot of students, you know, having to take classes online and professors teaching virtually. Um, I do expect to see a lot more of that in the future. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily to avoid uh, a virus, but <laughs> um, to be more cost-effective, right. streamline some things, uh, to be able to provide greater access to students. And so, again, that poses a challenge of students being very responsible and very independent in their learning and being able to, you know, make sure that they're doing everything, you know, virtually that they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I think that's one. Um, the second one, of course, um, if we do not change the way our higher education system, um, the affordability of it, how much it costs, uh, we're going to continue to see students being left out of opportunities. And, um, and the third thing I kind of mentioned before is, I think it becomes more and more important today, more than ever, that students have a better understanding of what they want to do in a career before they go to college. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I just don't think, um, I don't think we do enough to help them figure that out before they arrive on, on a college campus. Mm -hmm. I actually did a, a Facebook survey around this um, last year, and I was pretty surprised that the vast majority of people who responded said um, it's unnecessary and unreasonable to expect students out of high school to, to know what they want to do in life before they go to college. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was shocked to hear even trio people and other people say that it's unreasonable and unnecessary for them to know that. Yeah. And I just disagree completely. I think um, students need to sort of take it upon themselves to really figure out what they want to do in life. You don't want mm -hmm. to go and spend $100,000 on something and not know what you're going to do at the end of it. That right. doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So what would be some advice to aspiring and current college students that will, we're almost wrapping up here, but what would be some of that advice that you would give them? What, what's some advice that you would give to aspiring or current college students? Yeah, I would say the, the best advice is to learn um, the knowledge and skills needed um, before entering the workforce. Um, 
I think that's something that's, that's sorely missing. And I think employers, for the most part, feel they have to train. <laughs> that they can hire anybody with any degree, and they can just train them for what they need to know. Um, and so if, if students can connect to employers, if they can connect um, to the workforce in real life experiences, whether it be internships or volunteer experiences or any of those kinds of things, I really would, would recommend doing that. Um, because similar to having to relearn things in, in college, you really have to relearn things when you go to the workforce too. And uh, to the extent that they can do that while they're still in college, it's going to give them a leg up, um, you know, once they start. And then lastly, when they get to the workforce, um, don't just learn your job. Don't just go to work every day and punch a clock and learn what it is that you have to do. Take it upon yourself to learn everyone else's jobs and understand how your job fits in with them and overlaps and impacts other people's jobs at, at wherever you're working. Um, because that will make you better at what you do. It will also make you uh, more well-rounded and more marketable, uh, harder to get rid of because you can be interchangeable with other positions. Um, I think, you know, far too often people just put their head down and go to work and say, I'm just going to do my job. Right. Uh, and they don't understand the impact that has on the rest of the, the people employed around you. So. Yeah, that's some really sound advice, especially when it comes to learning not just your job, but learning how other jobs overlap with yours. Heath, that's that's really good advice right there. Um, before we finish, I did want to, uh, again, say thank you to Heath for being on the podcast, but also for being a Facebook DJ, for breaking up the monotony uh, of our Facebook timelines, because... Our timelines were becoming filled with coronavirus, uh, politics, and this or that. But you really took it upon yourself to make it a little bit more entertaining for Facebook. Yeah, yeah, man. I just, you know, I, it was Sunday, and I opened up Facebook, and I just saw just doom and gloom and, and everything. And, you know, sports is canceled, and, you know, it's like it seemed like everything was negative. And I thought, man, how in the world, what can I do? on social media to get people to smile, to laugh, to engage, to have fun. And, um, you know, the only thing I could think of was uh, what I labeled turn Facebook back into MySpace, which was, for those of you who never had MySpace, it was like, it was similar to Facebook, but you just put a bunch of music videos and, like, hobbies and things you liked on there. It was just like your spot where people could learn about you. Yeah. And so uh, I thought, you know, hey, I'll, I'll just sort of launch this campaign and see where it goes and uh, I was you know pretty excited to see how many people interacted and, and sent requests of music they wanted to play and it kind of turned turned me into the Facebook DJ for a day it did and uh, you know it was interesting to see the diversity of songs that people were requesting um, and really sort of highlighting the diversity of, of the friends that I have around the country and it was it was pretty fun. It was really cool. It was a nice trip down memory lane for me, especially because you put uh, Hanging by a Moment by Lifehouse, and I was just like, oh, man, that took me back to high school. Um, so, Heath, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, your insights to college and educational policies, and definitely your hobby as a Facebook DJ are truly something to be, to be admired. And, again, we thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, and I'll, I'll sign up just by saying Trio Works. Uh, that's a, a hashtag we use a lot, and I believe it. So, thank you Absolutely. And Heath, before we sign off, do you want to give the audience information about your company and where they can contact you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that little plug. Um, yeah, so we're at uh, Study Smart Tutors, um, and it's easy. StudySmartTutors.com is the website, and my email address 
is just uh, heath at studysmarttutors.com, H-E-A-T-H, at studysmarttutors, all one word, dot com. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of stuff on there for people to take a look at a lot of services we can provide both in person and virtually. Awesome. Heath, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Juan. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a TRIO program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk TRIO. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk TRIO. We want to get your story to the public. What a great interview with Heath Alexander. As you've heard there, he is a TRIO alum, uh, TRIO through and through, worked with the Council for Opportunity and Education, former teacher, and now developed his own company that's merged with another company. So a truly a true inspiration. We appreciate uh, Heath for being on the podcast and for sharing his experience with us. Again, if you'd like to be featured on Let's Talk Trio, you can send us a message via Facebook. Let us know that you'd like to be interviewed and we can certainly set up a time to meet with you. We're also taking requests from full program staff. So if you would like to sit down as a staff to be on the podcast, that is also okay. We can definitely do that. Um, We will uh, ask those programs to see if they can use Microsoft Teams as it is a whole lot easier for our podcast to host uh, uh, multiple people and we can all talk about your program, give a profile about what you do to serve your students. We're also encouraging any current students that are part of the TRIO programs, if you want to share your story and just to check in and and talk about uh, the program that you're participating in. We also want to reach out to TRIO alum who have done great things, or even if they're just currently still doing their grind and they've done the, the TRIO program and they want to share their story, absolutely. We're also doing staff profiles. So in the coming days, you'll be seeing the podcast feed. Uh, flow with a, a lot of professional profiles of people who are current directors, people who are uh, were for, former students or participants, alum. So you'll be seeing a lot of that. Uh, but we really want to cast a wide net to make sure we get all the stories we can here on Let's Talk Trio. Again, you can go to Patreon and donate. We do have a $500 a month goal that we'd like to meet. That way we can keep our podcast funded and that it's uh, generating enough uh, money for support for the supplies that we need, for upgrades, uh, technical equipment, um, and just for our staff to stay on the cutting edge of being able to upload a podcast, even a video record. Uh, At one point, we'd really like to uh, upload to YouTube. uh, That way, people can see our videos and, and have access that way. Our podcast will always remain free. We will not charge anyone to listen to our podcast and the the podcast really serves to inform the audience and let them know that trio programs exist where they exist and where they can um, really find a way to jump into a podcast and listen to about the programs for example in new york indiana in um, california oregon wherever so again a huge thank you to john russell who is our audio engineer and tech specialist 
Amelia Castañeda, who is our marketing director and producer. My name is Juan Rivas. I am the host and executive producer for Let's Talk Trio. Honorary members for Let's Talk Trio include Roderick Chambers, Scott Kendall, and Tony Ho. Thank you all very much.